The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merritt, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island, New York. I am Bill Donahue. I'm taking you through the first hour on this, the ninth day of July 2023, in case you're just waking up. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is with us as always, and he's seated right across the way. Happy to welcome you aboard tonight. Very happy that you could be with us. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight, as always. Leading off, we will speak with 1987 World Champ and 1988 ALCI Young Award winner, Frank Viola. And in the second half, we'll welcome in MLB.com beat reporter for the Yankees, Brian Hoke. Brian's got a new book out titled 62. It chronicles the great season and all the triumphs and tribulations of Aaron Judge in his record-breaking season. So we're looking forward to speaking with Brian about that. Sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy the show tonight on GBB. As always, some great people, some great sports talk and memories up ahead. Just want to remind you about social media. Uh, we're on Facebook. You can look us up, find us there, give it a look, then give it a like. You can also follow us on LinkedIn. We are, of course, on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Donahue, WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry, because uh, the next day they're usually out on the website, am1240wgbb.com. They're cataloged there. You can listen to them at your leisure. Well, our first guest, three-time All-Star. He was named World Series MVP with the Twins in 1987. He won the AL Cy Young Award in 1988. We remember him here with the Mets and his nickname, Sweet Music. He's now the pitching coach of the High Point Rockers in the Atlantic League, the league that the uh, the Ducks are in. So you could uh, probably see Frank over at the ballpark. Welcome to Sports Talk New York tonight, Frank Viola. Frank, good evening. How you doing, Bill? I'm doing fine, Frank. Now, I, wa- I want to uh, uh, apologize for, for all the reminders from Steve Shutt. I know he's he's been, <laughs> he's been on you like a cheap suit. I, I get very paranoid when my guests call in, and uh, I'm very happy that you're with us. I'm glad to be here. Okay, well... Now, uh, your baseball heroes when you were a boy, of course, people may, may know you, you grew up uh, in the shadow of the Nassau County Medical Center up the block uh, in East Meadow. Who, was your, who were your baseball heroes and your, and your favorite team when you were a kid? Uh, I guess I w- it was 1965. I went to my first Met game with my, with my dad. Uh-huh. And from five years old to 17 years old, we went to 11 baseball games a year. We went to 10 Mets to root for the Mets. And he always took me to one Yankee game to let me know where there was another New York team in town. <laughs> so okay. I grew up a Mets fan. Uh, the 69 Mets was probably the year that I fell in love with baseball, just being part of the, uh, uh, just the thrills and everything that went on in that year. They come back against the Cubs and then beating the Orioles in the World Series. It was right. just a great time to be a Mets fan. So th- that was it. Um, I guess the one favorite player I had, I was the first baseman up until my junior year in high school. 
So I always liked the fielders over the pitchers. Mm-hmm. So Cleon Jones was my favorite player out in left field, hit 340 that year in 69. Right, yep. And uh, not, a, not a bad choice. I just want to remind you, Frank, today is July 9th, and it's the anniversary of the imperfect game, July 9th, 1969, at uh, the day that the name Jimmy Qualls got burned into the lexicon of Met fans. <laughs> Just Isn't that crazy? Unreal. Just just a horrible night. He 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 pitched amazing, and just it was a gut punch when when Qualls got that hit. I'm sure you remember. Yeah, I do. I do. Now now you, I heard Frank that your high school coach always carried one of your baseball cards with him uh, after you made the major leagues. Is that true? I I don't remember. I don't recall that. Mike Kostick was my baseball coach in high school. He was an older gentleman. Uh-huh. Um, you, you might be talking about um, our JV coach. Uh, he coached at the high school after Coach Kostick for a number of years, and his name is eluding me right now. But we were really good friends, and, and I, it wouldn't surprise me if I had my baseball card there to be able to show the kids, hey, if, if Frank could make it, any of you guys could make it if you work hard enough. I think it was just a tool to... Uh, excite the kids, give them something to work for. Motivate, yeah. Exactly. And, uh, you know, East Meadows' program was always pretty solid, so hopefully it worked a little bit. Yep, we hope so, Frank. Now, you went on to St. John's. They were the Red Men then. The game uh, you pitched against Yale well, goes down in history. You and Ronnie Darling got locked in. Uh, you became teammates later on. Tell us a little bit about that game. It was in Jamaica, well, right? No, actually, it was in uh, old uh, Yale Stadium. Oh, all right. It was a Northeast Regional NCAA game, and uh, it was opening game for us, and we were playing Yale, and then they had Central Michigan and Maine as the other two teams in the region. And um, at that time, we heard about this Ron Darling guy. He had started 26 games in his collegiate career, and he completed 26 games in his career. So... Uh, he could do it all. Uh, he was going to be a bona fide first-round draft choice, so we knew going in we had to be ready to go. We didn't realize how good he was until we faced him. And, you know, from St. John's, we were a bunch of cocky so-and-so, Long Island boys, Brooklyn boys, Bronx boys. I mean, we didn't take crap from anybody. We thought that we could beat anybody just by showing up. And <laughs> at, the end of, at the end of the first inning, I think Ronnie struck out the first two out of three guys in the first inning, and our number three hole hitter. Came into the diary going, oh, my God, I've never seen anybody pitch like this. <laughs> and long story short, Ronnie went 11 innings with a no-hitter. Uh, I think he struck out 16 or 17 along the way. Uh, fortunately, on the other side, I was able to match him. I gave up like six or seven hits, walked a couple of guys. But uh, every time I look back at the scoreboard, it was 0-0. So through 11 innings, it was nothing-nothing, and Ronnie had the no-hitter. And the 12th, Steve Scaffer, our leadoff hitter, second baseman, got a base hit, a little bloop to left field, opposite field base hit. He stole second. Um, there was an error on the play, on, on another play following. So it ended up ultimately being first and third, one out. And we pulled a double steal that, looking back, and Ronnie will tell you himself, he was supposed to catch the ball from the catcher in case the runner was going. We were going to let the guy steal second, but he slipped after the pitch. So the throw went into second base. They had a little rundown. The guy from third ended up scoring because the rundown got botched, and we ended up winning one nothing. The thing that made it infamous, though, Bill, was that uh, at the game was Roger Angel, who just passed away this past year at 99. He was a world-class rider. 
mm-hmm. and he wrote an article, and he was in the stands with Smokey Joe Wood, Hall of Fame pitcher with the Boston Red Sox, just taking the game in, and all of a sudden, this broke out. And he wrote about it, and it went national, and then it went historical, and, you know, it, it just made Ronnie and I famous, and it's pretty cool to be saying that of all the college games over time, Roger Angel and Smokey Joe Wood says the best college game they ever saw, so... Uh, we're, we're, we're infamous for that. We became close because of that. And we ended up being teammates with the Mets because of, you know, do all that. So we had a wonderful relationship, and we still do. Amazing story, Frank. Yeah, to, to have Roger Angel in, in the crowd with Smokey Joe Wood. I mean, there, there's a classic baseball name, and, and uh, what a story. That is tremendous. Thanks for yeah. uh, relating that for the us. Funny part, uh, the funny part about to finish it off, though, I'm sorry for interrupting you. No that. worries. There might have been there might have been eight hundred people at the game, but you know, forty years later, there's around twenty five thousand. <laughs> yeah, right. It was great. Everybody, yeah, like Everybody. Uh, like I was on the Titanic. Yeah, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> now, now uh, you signed with the Twins. Uh, I believe it was in the second round of the eighty one draft. On the on the way up, Frank, any, anybody make an impact on your career uh, on the road to the majors? Well, I, if, if I'm giving kudos to anybody, I have to start with Howie Gershberg, who was my pitching coach at St. John's. Mm-hmm. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I always started pitching my junior year in high school. I was a lefty. Lefties, you know, don't have too many lefty pitchers. It's a nice, it's a nice gift to be left-handed. Uh, I had a natural delivery, all that stuff, but I didn't know how to pitch. Uh, I got drafted out of high school, but I decided I wanted to go to St. John's because I wasn't ready. They gave me a scholarship. I could continue my education, but I could also learn of a pitching coach who was really good at what he did. Uh, you know, John Franco and myself uh, went there, uh, and that's a pretty good duo right there. Sure. So Howie was the – he was my guru as far as learning the pitching and aspects of it, the mental part of it. The guy who made the changes for me uh, in the big leagues was Johnny Padres. Ah, wow. Um, There's a great Johnny, name. Johnny yeah. pitched for the Brooklyn Dodgers along with Sandy Colfax and mm-hmm. – uh, I'm missing the other big guy, Don Drysdale. He was the MVP of the 54 World Series. Right. He was just a great, great person to me. Um, he taught me, he told me how important the changeup would be in my career. I started out with a curveball, pretty so-so slide on the fastball, but he said the changeup would make a difference in my career. So he just, we went through around 12 grips my first year in the big leagues, and I didn't feel comfortable with any of them. I was, I was not doing anything correctly. Anyway, long story short, we were, we were terrible on the field, so Billy Gardner and Johnny got fired. And the last thing Johnny did before he left the clubhouse after being fired, he came to me and he said, no matter what happens to me, I'm going to be fine, but I don't ever want you to stop throwing that changeup. And it took me another six months. I kept on throwing it because of what Johnny told me, and before you know it, I was able to figure it out, and it just changed my, my, my career. And you know, from 87 to 93 or whatever it was till I hurt my arm, I was one of the dominant guys in the game because Johnny Padres believed in me and my changeup, and I was able to finally learn it and throw it. Great, great name, as I said, Frank. And uh, ironically, Johnny Padres ended his career in '69 with the San Diego Padres. And, uh, right, that's right. Yeah, I, I remember him there, and uh, what a way to go out with the Padres. But I want to talk about the '87 World Series, Frank. Most valuable player in there, but your team, the Minnesota Twins. 
was uh, they were not uh, a great ball club, to put it uh, bluntly, during the season. As Al Michaels, uh, he did the play-by-play of the of the series. He put it in the pre- in the pregame show of Game One. The Twins were out everything, outnumbered. Out. Uh, yep. how, how did the Twins make it to the World Series that year? Uh, I think you hit it on the head. We were very fortunate. We were in a, of the four divisions back then. It was before they had the six divisions. It was just the East West and the National League East West, the American League, and. The AL West was the weakest of all divisions. It's pretty similar to uh, the AL Central this year with Minnesota leading with the game up over 500 or whatever. You know, we were just lucky to be in the division. We played our best best baseball at the end of the season to get through to win the division. And I think that at that point we realized, you know what, we have nothing to lose. Nobody expects us to be here. Uh, we was, we thought on paper we weren't as good as everybody else, but when you look back, the only weak link we really had was our starting pitching. We had, if you look at our everyday lineup, we could have competed against anybody if we understood how good we were. I don't think we understood how good we were. Uh, you know, you have a whole you have a whole famer in Kirby Puckett in center field. You had a great great hitter in Ken Herbeck at first base. Mm-hmm. You had a third baseman who defensively and offensively could dominate games in Gary Gaetti. Uh, you had Greg Gagne, who was a very sure-handed shortstop with speed. You had uh, Dan Gladden, who came over from the San Francisco Giants in a major trade, who was our leadoff hitter that that made things happen. Right. Uh, we got we got Al Newman as a utility type infielder to spell people. Randy Bush was a great hitter. Tom Burdansky was a terrific player. We we had guys who could play, but it was just basically myself and Burke Blylevin in the rotation. Mm-hmm. So in a short series, it was wonderful because we could pitch five of the seven games. And that's where a guy by the name of Les Straker came into the equation. Right. You know, we, brought old, we, we brought old school guys, uh, Steve Call, Joe Negro, uh, Mike Smith and John. But we had a whole bunch of guys trying to fill that third, fourth, fifth spot during the year. I think that's why our record was as poor as it was. But in a series like that, we realized our bullpen was a strength. You know, we had Jeff Reardon, who was one of the best in the game. Uh, we had Juan Berenger and, uh, and uh, Keith Atherton, a kid that came over from the Oakland A's. We had guys who could get people out. We decided to get through six innings, and that's what we were able to do in the playoffs, and we just played our base, best baseball with Things just fell into place from there. Right, and everything uh, fell into place. You're exactly right. Now, I want to talk San Francisco, about... Uh, I'm sorry, in the National League, too, while we were beating Detroit 5, San Francisco and St. Louis were driving each other crazy in a seven-game series. That might have taken something out of St. Louis after they won that series. So even that was an advantage for us going to the World Series. Good point, Frank. Yeah, that's definitely true. I want to talk to you about the noise in the Metrodome. Of course, everybody remembers one of the noisiest uh, venues in in sports was the Metrodome. And again, our friend Al Michaels comes up with... uh, sort of a case where the twins are piping in noise to the Metrodome to make it noisier. Did, did you ever hear about that? Yeah, they talked about it. They also <laughs> talked about the vents being open and closed when we were hit to help the ball travel. Honestly, the air God, conditioning, was, too. The air conditioning. Yeah. There was a technician yep, yep, at the yep. Metrodome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All, all these advantages that we had, you know. The, but the biggest advantage we had was, A, the white ceiling. Nobody ever played in the dome that had a a ball. If you don't follow the ball, its whole path, and you take your eye off of it, you have a ninety percent chance of losing it. Mm-hmm. So that was very. There was a very disadvantage, a great disadvantage for the opposing teams who didn't know about that. 
But I think the biggest advantage we had, and, and I, you're not lying about the noise, it was it was just the fan noise, but it was absolutely incredible. <laughs> if anybody if anybody has ever stood in an airport in an airport and watched the plane take off, that's the kind of noise that the Metrodome had. My ears after the World Series were ringing for three days from the noise <laughs> of the Metrodome crowd. And I'll, be per- and I'll be perfectly honest with you, I did not think that baseball inside in Minnesota should have been allowed. I mean, Minnesota only has a few months a year of beautiful weather, and that's the summertime, and we're playing indoor baseball. But it helped us so tremendously in that 87 season that we're just thankful that we did have that advantage and we took advantage of it. That's true. Very true, Frank. Now, I had read also for game one, you you were uh, the starter. Uh, your brother got married that night. <laughs> His wife still hasn't talked to me after three yeah, years. Yeah. <laughs> I was supposed to be I was supposed to be the best man at my brother's wedding and we did he, he, he set the they set the wedding date a year plus ahead of time. And the year before we were in last place so they figured, okay, there's no way Frank's not gonna make it. And then sure enough we had the year, everything fell into place and I'm pitching game one when my brother's going down the aisle with his lovely wife and um, <laughs> I sent a VHS tape as as part of the best man speech because I wasn't there, but I don't. I think they, in all seriousness, I think they forgave me because of we won game one. They went on their honeymoon, and I and when they landed, we had airline tickets to come out to Minnesota, so they got to win game seven and celebrate with us. So I think that made up for it a little bit. All right, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did you feel coming over to the Mets, Frank? I thought it was, you know. When you look back, it's really easy to make assumptions and all the other stuff that goes along with it. But my time in Minnesota was special. I mean, those are my those were the greatest years. But if I was going to be traded to anybody, it was to the Mets. Mm-hmm. As you as we've already talked, it was a team I grew up rooting for. I loved uh, my first year and a half with them was special because I had so much success. The only the only negative was that we had so much talent and we couldn't win a division, get to the playoffs. And then in 91, my last year with the Mets, I had a great first half, maybe all-star team. And as the team was falling apart in the second, second half, I was falling apart. I had a terrible second half at the end of my contract. Uh, looking back, it was easy to understand why the Mets took Gooden over me because of my lack of numbers in the second half of the year. But you know what? It is what it is. That's baseball. That's business. I was very fortunate to be able to say I wore a Met uniform and had success there and had a wonderful time there. I did miss having to leave, but I ended up going as a creator with the Red Sox and having a good couple of years before I blew out there. So, mm-hmm. you know, as it, you know baseball. Baseball, you just never know where you're going to be comfortable, where you're going to be home. But everywhere I went, I had a good time, and that's all I could ask for. I mean, the biggest part was I had my family with me at all those spots and all those stops. You know, my wife and my three kids. Mm-hmm. Forty years later, I'm still married. I got three kids and six grandkids now, so life's good. And I'm glad to, everything worked out for a reason. Definitely, this is Frank Viola with us tonight on the program. As I as I said, uh, or as you said, you went to the Red Sox. There was uh, a combined no hitter in spring training. I read about that. That's compelling. Uh, the Red Sox defeated the Phillies ten nothing, and that was at the old Jack Russell Stadium back yep, in yep. back in Clearwater. And I, I went there, Frank, uh, before it closed, of course, and uh, they used to have kids 
over the out uh, behind the outfield fence selling baseballs from uh, <laughs> yes that that came over the fence. I remember yep, a kid yep. coming up to me. You want to buy a baseball? Uh, sure. I gave him five bucks. You know, and they. they I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> the Jack local Russell, kids. Believe it or not, Jack Russell was our instructional league site with the Minnesota Twins for a few years. So I actually went there in 1981, the year I was drafted, 1982, to work out my out of my stretch for four weeks staying at Clearwater Beach. That was a great old stadium. Yeah, and it was a great area of Clearwater. That was that was a good time of my life. I enjoyed that. But think back to that one spring training game. It was my last start in spring training, and I was hoping to go six or seven innings to get ready for the regular season. I ended up going seven innings. And, you know, we didn't get, spring training, the numbers never mattered. But at the end of my seven innings, my coaching staff said, hey, a nice job. Look what you did. And I looked at the board, saw a zero. And for the life of me, I cannot recall the guy who came in, but whoever came in finished up the last two innings. They made a little bit of a deal out of that no hitter in spring training. Yeah, not bad. Better than losing, that's for sure, Frank. Exactly. What made you get into coaching? Did did you plan that all along? And did anybody influence uh, your style of coaching? Um, I guess I could answer the uh, the, the first part first. Uh, after I retired uh, in '96, I wanted to. I, I was playing catch up a little bit with my family, so I wanted to spend some time with the kids. My kids all went to a preparatory school in Orlando. So what I ended up doing was I ended up being the assistant coach on the baseball team because my son was playing. I didn't want to be the head coach and butt heads with my son as a head coach player type thing. So I was the pitching coach there, and my two girls went there, so I got to spend time during the day at school, see them during, you know, between classes and stuff, and played a little catch-up dad stuff. Well, after six years, uh, after a couple years of being the assistant coach, my son Frankie was a senior uh, and, I, and they asked me to take over the program, so I was the high school coach there for six years and had a wonderful time there. My son went on to play baseball at the University of Central Florida and uh, got drafted by the White Sox. My two girls did their own thing, but I got to spend time with the family, did that, made the, helped the program out at Lake Highland, and I realized at that time I enjoyed coaching. So uh, after the kids left school and stuff, I decided, you know, I wanted to go on. My wife told me, they're out of, out of the house now. you got to get out of the house, too, because you're driving me crazy. <laughs> so I ended up going for three summers coaching at the Florida Collegiate League. Uh, David Johnson managed one team. I managed another team. And it was a six-team league or five-team league. And I was in Leesburg, Florida. Did that for three years. Got to the championship game two of those three years. And we played our championship games at uh, Tropicana Field where the Rays play. Mm-hmm. So I enjoyed that. But during the time, it was, I was missing something. I just wanted to make a little bit of difference. Baseball has always been in my blood. So in 2009-ish, 2010, Eric Wedge, who was my teammate at the Red Sox, was managing the Cleveland Indians. And I ran into him. I told him, you know, I really want to get back into you know, professional baseball again. What would I do? So... He was nice enough to invite me to spring training in Surprise, Arizona with the Cleveland Indians. Mm-hmm. I spent six weeks there working with, you know, as a, not as a staff, I was a staff member, but not a paid staff member. I just did the stuff, learned the system. And at the end of that period, I realized, you know what, I could enjoy this. And not the big league level, but the minor league level where I could still make a difference and use my name and what I did and accomplished and so on and so forth. 
And that winter, that winter, I went to the winter meetings in Orlando and ran into J.P. Riccardi, who was starting his first year after being the GM for the Toronto Blue Jays, who started with the Mets. And he had always told me, if you're ready to get back in the game, look me up. Mm-hmm. So I found him, said, I'm interested, sent me up to the Mets uh, suite. I interviewed for the Brooklyn Cyclones pitching coach job, and I got it. And I ended up working 2011 with the Brooklyn Cyclones, 2012 and 13 with the Savannah Sandnats, uh, South Atlantic League for the Mets, uh, 13, 14, 15, or 14, 15, 16, 17 in Vegas as a AAA pitching coach, mm-hmm. and 18 in Binghamton before analytics came to play and they decided to go another avenue. But that time with the Mets, those eight years, was almost as fun as being a player again because I got to work with the likes of Jacob DeGrom, Stephen Matz, Michael Fulmer, uh, Noah Syndergaard, uh, Seth, L- uh, Seth Lugo, Paul Steele. I mean, nice. I can go on and on. Yeah. All these guys in the big leagues now I, I had a little part of and made hopefully a little bit of difference with them. So coaching, I guess, has been in my blood, and I've enjoyed the time doing it. And I guess the biggest influence to answer your other question was probably watching how Tom Kelly managed with the Twins. Yeah, how he was a great skipper, took, yeah. Oh, uh, great skipper, but he also – was a, what we used, what we used to call a player's manager. He got to know us as players personally, our families, uh, he realized that we had good days and bad days and you know, we could talk to him and share things with him. But when he needed to chew you out, he chewed you out and he respected him for him because you know he cared. And I think all that put together, and I think that's why I'm still here with the High Point Rockers doing what I'm doing now because I still got a bunch of guys who played ex major league and or still want to get back to affiliated ball and they have dreams and you got to be tough with them but you guys show them how much you care about them too so I, I really still at 63 years old enjoy what I'm doing not a lot of guys can say that no and uh, as you said you're doing what you love Frank and that's to be admired be- before we go Frank I want to ask you if you were pitching today these guys have have a walk-up song they have a warm-up song uh, <laughs> everything and uh, sweet music what would sweet music pick to be his warm-up song um I did, you put me on the spot here and it pissed <laughs> me off because here's the worst part as i get older i forget things there is a song and i can't for the life of me remember the name of it but it includes sweet music in the song in in the uh in the main part of the song i would probably play that one and i just i hate to leave on this note i can't think of the name of the song and i'm sorry that's okay, but it would have it would have something to be with sweet music because that was such a great nickname that uh, Chris, Chris Chris Berman gave me years back. Is that where it came from, Frank? From from Chris Berman you, at ESPN? You got another you got another minute? Yeah, sure. All right. Story story in a nutshell. I pitched. A, I I struggled my first year and a half in the big leagues. I was god awful. I finally had a good game, and the headlines came out in the new uh, in the St. Paul Pioneer Press that Viola plays sweet music versus the Tigers or something like that. <laughs> And back then, it was before cell phones, and Chris Berman was on a roll with nicknames, and he had given me 101 strings viola for the viola, violin type thing. Right. Well, two granny ladies read this article. They called ESPN via a regular phone. Chris picked up the phone from ESPN, and the ladies said, we have a better nickname for Frank. So Chris decided to do his due diligence. He called me up on a land phone. And he goes, I'm leaving it up to you. 101 strings or sweet music. And I thought about it, and I'm like, damn, sweet music sounds so good. Nice. 40 years years later, it's still sticking with me.
And there it goes. The rest is history, folks. Well, two Grammy ladies and Chris Berman. <laughs> that is amazing. Frank, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us back here on the island. You can take that sign out of your locker now that's hanging up there that tells you to call and all the details. I got it like right that. here in front of you. See, I've had it in front of me four days now. <laughs> Well, I, I want to thank Steve, too, for uh, reminding me and staying on you. I thank you for calling us, and uh, I wish you all the best down in High Point. Really appreciate it. Great talking to you, Bill. Have a good night. You, too. That's the great Frank Viola, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we will welcome in the MLB.com beat reporter for the New York Yankees. How about that? Yankee talk, folks. Brian Hoke will be with us, so stick around. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM at 12:40 a.m. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right. We back, Brian? No, not yet. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. With Sports Talk New York here on WGBB. Uh, so here we are, uh, all-star break already, right? The Midsummer Classic. Uh, I, I believe there is too much hype with the all-star game. I think it should be a little more understated. I think that they actually jumped the shark when they started this red carpet event. I mean, I think that's ridiculous. Uh, can you, can you imagine Jimmy Fox? Or Hack Wilson, better yet, or Charlie Geringer coming up the red carpet. Or, or um, how about Frank Howard and Boog Powell? Yeah, that, that, that would be great to see those guys in uh, a jacket and no shirt underneath like Starling Marte. And uh, the, the National and American League uniforms. I remember as a kid, the big thrill was watching the introductions of, of the two teams. I, I remember... Uh, the, the uniforms, guys, the different uniforms, the different colors. You had the, uh, the red of the Senators, the, the black and orange of the Orioles, the sleeveless jerseys and the white shoes of the Athletics. I, I just think it was classier, more, more traditional. And, uh, there was the thrill during the introductions of watching guys who would someday uh, be enshrined in Cooperstown, guys who would have 300 wins, uh, 500 homers, 3,000 hits, records that we won't see uh, too often in the future. And uh, as I said, all the home and road uniforms of the respected teams, 
just a different time, my friends. That's all it is, and uh, I guess we have to go with the flow. I'd just like to mention, as I did to Frank Viola uh, a little bit ago, that today is July 9th. Back in 1969, uh, Tom Seaver pitched what's come to know to come to be known as um, his imperfect game, and it unfortunately burned the name of one Jimmy Qualls into the minds of Met fans who are old enough to remember that. So, uh, just a, a little memory of Tom, terrific there. Keep him in your prayers. Uh, a great man left us way too soon. Well, off we go into round two of the show, ladies and gentlemen. Our next guest, he has covered New York baseball for the past two get- decades, working the New York Yankees clubhouse as an MLB.com beat reporter. That's been since 2007. He's the author and co-author of several books, including The Baby Bombers, Mission 27, and The Bronx Zoom His latest book is titled 62, Aaron Judge, The New York Yankees, and The Pursuit of Greatness. You can pick this book up, folks, beginning uh, Tuesday, July 11th. It will be up uh, at your local bookstore. You can find out more about Brian on his website, brian-hoke, and that's H-O-C-H dot com. And please follow him on Twitter at brianhoke, or one word, and uh, I'd like to welcome to the show Brian Hoke. Brian, good evening. Good evening. How are you? Thank you for having me. Doing wonderful, Brian. Doing wonderful. I hope you're doing the same. Now, I had read you uh, hail from, you grew up in Sloatsburg, New York. Yes, sir. Did you hang out at the uh, Thruway rest stop? <laughs> I've been asked that question a lot. Actually, you know, growing up there, we could ride our bikes up there, and they had a McDonald's, and that was the only McDonald's we could ride to. So that was a big deal when I was like eight or nine or ten years old, whatever it was, that you could put a dollar in your pocket and go up and get a cheeseburger or get a Happy Meal or something. So, And we didn't have to ask Mom and Dad to drive us there. So that was kind of a big deal uh, growing up near the rest stop. Now, I thought Ramapo had McDonald's, and Sloatsburg has something else. What's the deal there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, it's been a while since yeah. I've been up that way. I'm actually at Yankee Stadium right now. Oh, uh, nice. Just uh, finished the game here. So I- I'm a little bit uh, removed from my Rockland days, but uh, definitely it was a great place to, uh, to, grow, to grow up, and I have uh, so many fond memories of that. I will always think of you, Brian, as I pass by Sloatsburg now, forever, forever. I appreciate that, <laughs> yes. Now, you went to Suffern High School. Uh, your journalism career really started with uh, a Mets online, Mets website that uh, really would open doors for you in the future. Tell us a little bit about starting out on that Mets online site. Oh, man, yeah, we're going in the Wayback Machine. But, uh, yeah, I was uh, 14 years old. I was still living at home, as most 14-year-olds do at that point. I was a freshman in high school. And I was lucky to come around when the Internet first became starting. It became a, a big thing. And we're talking like dial-up AOL days of the mid-1990s. And uh, if you remember the Internet back then, it was kind of like a wild, wild west. You know, it was very primitive. The baseball coverage was not great. There was a Yankees.com. And, yes, the Mets were my favorite team at the time. And there was no Mets.com. And so I, you know, being all – I loved baseball growing up, student of the game. I lived it. I breathed it. I ate it. Uh, collected all the cards. Uh, Mets, I, I, I was 
so into the Mets that I started what today I guess we would call a blog, but we didn't even have that term at the time. And so um, that's how I kind of started writing about baseball. And at first it was to maybe two dozen people, and then it was a few hundred, and then it was a few thousand. And before you knew it, uh, I, I started to say, hey, maybe this is something that I can do in real life as a career. And so uh, that kind of shaped my viewpoint and shaped my opinion of uh, where I could go and what I wanted to do with my life. Nice. Okay. Now, I also read, uh, Brian, that you're a collector of vintage tops cards. And I'm, I'm interested in that because I, I had uh, 7,528 cards uh, one year when I was a kid. And uh, the packs were a nickel back then, uh, including mm. including the gum that if you dropped it on the ground, it would crack into a million pieces because it was stale. And uh, I believe my favorite year was the 68 year, the, the one with the little brown dots all around uh, mm-hmm. the border. Yeah, the burlap. Sure. Yeah. Now, wh- what's your favorite Topps card? Ooh, favorite card. That is a tough call, and there are so many coming to my mind, right? I mean, I look, you know, the dream card to own, of course, would be the 52 Tops Mantle, but oh, I don't yeah. think, I think that's a little out of my price range here. Right. Um, you know, there is a, there was a kind of a, a website where you could buy a fractional share of a 52 Tops Mantle, and I did it just as a goof to say that I, I own $10 <laughs> of one, so, yeah. um, because I'm probably never going to get the real deal, but I, I would say probably one of the best uh, cards in my collection, I guess, would be a, a Reggie Jackson rookie card. That's a that's a fun one I have. I like to show that one off. Uh, my birth year was 1982, so a, kind of a big project was putting together the whole 82 top set, and I did that uh-huh. with my dad, which is uh, you know, a nice, cool memory. You know, it, it, anytime I pull that out of the, the closet and look at it, I just remember all the, the weekends that my dad and I spent together going to card shows and uh, trying to put that together one card at a time. So uh, yeah, I, it definitely. Uh, Bonds of generations, I feel like. It's a great hobby. A lot of fun. Yeah, Brian. And uh, I will remember the day that I pulled my mantle out of the pack uh, just like it was yesterday. And I had I had the gum in my mouth, and the people thought I was choking uh, <clears throat> because I was so excited to pull the Mickey mantle out of the pack. And uh, you never forget stuff like that. That's great. We're speaking with the Yankees beat reporter for MLB.com, Brian Hoke. And... Uh, one one more thing, Brian. Good bourbon. <laughs> where where would you rate Yebel or Re, yeah, Rebel Yell? Where would that fall in your yank in your rankings? Oh, uh, well, I guess it depends. Are you buying? Because yeah. if you are, then uh, I'll it's, enjoy it's anything. It's just fine. Uh, yeah. you know, usually, my go-to order if, if I'm at the bar or uh, you know out for a, a nightcap after a game or something with uh, some of the other reporters, I'll go Maker's Mark on the rocks and. Um, so that's my free advertisement, I guess. Maybe they'll send me a case if they hear this, uh, this this interview. I hope so. Yeah, that would be great. Now, tell us, what is life like as a beat reporter? What's a day like? Mm, uh, it can be a grind at times. You know, like I said, the Yankees played a day game today, and uh, I'm, I'm just walking out today because it's been a kind of a crazy day here at the stadium. The Yankees hire, uh, fired their hitting coach today, so there's been some breaking news happening here, and uh, it's the final game before the All-Star break. So, uh, you know, I get to the ballpark probably roughly around 9.30 in the morning, and what time is it now? I'm talking to you. It's 8.40 at night, so, and I'm just, uh, I just walked out of the car. I'm chatting with you and uh, talking some baseball here on the radio, and then I'm going to drive home. Nice. Well, that is a long day, Brian. Yeah, and it, it was a tough day up at the stadium. What story that you've written, uh, I know there's probably many, 
Uh, do you have a favorite piece or one that you're real proud of? Oh, I mean, so many. But I would say that since I'm coming on to talk about this new book, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to tell everybody who's listening that this book is uh, my favorite thing that I've written. You know, all my books, uh, People, a lot of times people ask, you know, which of your book is your favorite? And that's kind of like saying which of your kids is your favorite. But I'm going to tell you that this one, I think, just tells the complete story of what, I expect is the most magical wire-to-wire -wire season that I will ever see for a player. And there were so many great things that happened with Aaron Judge chasing this home run record of 62 last season. Uh, and I was able to draw the connection between three great Yankee right fielders in Babe Ruth, Roger Maris, and Aaron Judge, all of whom played the same position in the same city for the same team, obviously at, very, at various times in different eras. Uh, 1927 is a lot different than 1961 and certainly a lot different than what the Twitter and Instagram world that Judge did it in uh, last year. But I, I feel like there were so many parallels to draw between these guys uh, as they chased the record, the pressure they went through, the spotlight in the media. And it, it really allowed – it's a book about Judge chasing the record, but it's really a book about the Yankees and about Major League Baseball and New York City and uh, the parallels in time between Matt 61 and Judge in 2022, 61 years apart, uh, appropriately enough, and uh, it allowed me to go into a lot of baseball history, which I love as we talk about the baseball cards, and even talk mm -hmm. to some of the few remaining members of the 1961 Yankees. There's not many guys still there, but uh, I was able to speak at length with Bobby Richardson and Tony Kubek, and that really, I felt, uh, lent some kind of gravitas about what Judge did, what Maris did, and how important it was to guys who experienced both of it. Right. A lot of accolades coming in on the on the book, Brian, too. I want to read one from Tyler Kepner. Uh, he says, The definitive story of Yankee slugger Aaron Judge's incredible, unparalleled run to break Roger Maris's home run record and the franchise both men called home. And I read accolades on the book from, from other people. Uh, Tom Verducci and, and, uh, Hall of Famer Bill Madden. So you must be real proud of that. I am. I, yeah, it's, uh, you never know, I guess, uh, how people are going to react when you write a book. It's, it, uh, writing a book is really, uh, a project that you kind of do by yourself. I mean, obviously I was doing all the interviews as the season went on and di did even more after Judge had broken the record. And uh, then when he got his new contract and was named the Yankees captain, I mean, there were so many people that I was talking to during it. So I wasn't lonely, I guess, but the writing part of it is a lonely process. And there are definitely times where you kind of, when you've read something for the 14th or 15th time, as you keep going over it and you're slaving over each paragraph and just trying to get every word exactly right, you're gonna, you, there are those moments of doubt where you just say, you know, are people going to like this? Are they going to enjoy this book? And then so to get it out in the world, and I'm so excited it's coming out on Tuesday. Uh, I know that it's been popping up at a couple bookstores already, which is awesome. And all the reaction has been so positive. It's, it's kind of overwhelming and uh, really, really cool to just know that uh, now my name is somehow linked in history here with not only Aaron Judge, but Roger Maris Jr., who wrote the foreword. Mm -hmm. uh, to be connected to the Maris family uh, for all time, that, that's awesome, and I, I'm not even sure I can put that into words. Brian Hoke is with us tonight talking about the new book, 62, which, as we said, hits the bookstores on Tuesday. 
Uh, the preface of the book is by Aaron Boone, as you said, the foreword by Roger Maris, Jr. Now, I've had Roger on the program before. He's gone through the chase for his dad's record before, Brian. Mm-hmm. Do you think there was the feeling of, oh, man, here we go again, like a hangover from the results of the last guys who broke the record? Anything like that? I, I think that for Roger, it was complicated back then when he was watching uh, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, and then uh, you know he, Barry Bonds wasn't going after his dad's record. But even just watching that from afar, I feel like there was a fatigue that set in, especially when uh, performance-enhancing drug allegations started swirling, and we started to recognize that what they were doing was not exactly on the level of what Roger Maris did in 1961 and the achievement that he had. So I think that there. There was probably some trepidation on Roger Jr.'s part, but uh, getting to know Judge, getting to know his family, and traveling with the Yankees for about a week there at the end of the season, I think that really kind of opened up his mind because he, he didn't know Judge at all. Uh, he, he knew him from afar. and They actually didn't even meet in person until after Judge hit the 61st home run, and that was partially by design. Roger and the Maris family were at games at Yankee Stadium, and they were invited down on the field and to go in the clubhouse, and uh, they basically said, no, we'll wait until he ties Dad because we know what he's going through, how, much, how many different people are pulling at him for attention, how much media focus there is right now. There's enough crazy craziness going on in Judge's life as uh, the fans are waiting for him to tie and break this record ultimately. So we'll wait. And so I was there in the bowels of the Rogers Center in Toronto that night as uh, Roger Jr. finally got to shake hands with Aaron Judge and hug him. And, uh, you know, Roger Jr., the first thing he said was, why'd you make me wait so long? And so, uh, but it it was a lot of fun. It was cool to have the Maris family around kind of giving their stamp of approval uh, to this other Yankee great right fielder in Judge, and uh, it, it was a really nice passing of the torch, especially for a franchise that values and treasures its history as much as the Yankees do. Very true. Uh, the Roger Maris family uh, baseball royalty indeed. Now, the pressure of chasing Roger Maris, we, we've heard stories about uh, the pressure that Roger endured while chasing the babe. Uh, Henry, Arrow, Henry Aaron chasing the Bambino as well. What did Aaron Judge face? Was were there any any rules or uh, any limits put in place in this day, especially of of the mass media and now social media? Yeah, I, I think that he did a very good job of blocking that out because it's a survival tactic. I think he's had he's learned uh, after playing so many years in New York City how. Uh, what he needs to do to kind of focus and, and to be a performer out there every single day and go out and contribute on offense, on defense, and help the Yankees win ballgames. So, uh, yeah, the, you're right in, in that the spotlight is completely different than what Roger Maris endured in 1961. And I think a big uh, – difference between them that I want to talk about here is, yeah, we, we've heard about Roger had patches of hair falling out, and he had weird rashes popping up on his body from stress and the anxiety of it, and I think part of it was that there was a 
big portion, maybe even a majority of the fan base that did not want him to break that record. They either wanted it to stay with Babe Ruth or for Mickey Mantle to break it because he was the quote-unquote true Yankee, and he had come up as a Yankee rookie, and Roger was just a the guy they'd gotten in a trade from uh, the, the Athletics. So true, true. with Judge, there was none of that. There was none of the fan base kind of saying, oh, I hope he doesn't get it. Uh, everybody was kind of on Judge's side, and I feel like even opponents around the league last year, uh, you know, obviously they wanted to win when they were playing against the Yankees, but from afar, they wanted to see Judge hit home runs just as much as anybody. And so I feel like this was a chase that captured the imagination. I mean, they were cutting in on college football games that show judges at bats by the end of it. And there were games at Yankee Stadium where you had these packed houses and people were on their feet and uh, with their camera phones out. And, and it got actually quiet. It was like a golf match where the <laughs> yeah. crowd would be completely hushed and then you'd have a hitter trying to bat. And it was just completely bizarre and unlike anything I've ever covered before. I can imagine. Yeah, it was uh, an admirable time in Major League Baseball, that's for sure. Now, Aaron's had a, a little bit of a problem throughout his career staying on the field. Uh, that's, a, that's a shame. And what, what do you think the plans are for an encore? Do you, do you think that's in the offing, or, or uh, what would you say? Yeah, I, I, obviously we're living it right now, and it's, it's partially because he does play the game at 100%. And mm-hmm. some of these injuries, there's nothing you can do about it. If you're going to run into a concrete block in Los Angeles chasing down a fly ball, I don't know how that's avoidable other than to tell him uh, don't chase the ball and don't catch the ball. And I don't think the Yankees ever want to do that because it's going to take away part of what makes him great. So obviously the, the best ability is availability. Players always say that. And so if you look at last season, he was able to play in 157 games and had a fantastic year, won the MVP award, and uh, really was able to do so much more than just the home run record for this Yankee team. And so that's what they need. That's what they want. Uh, and I think that it, there is a balancing act there. You want to get him in the lineup for as many games as possible because he is the best player on the team. He's arguably the best player in the league, and uh, he is a difference maker. You see how much the Yankees have struggled without him here. I think they're 14 and 17 since, uh, since he crashed into that wall, so they are not the same team without him. But uh, if you take away some of the superpowers that make him great, that also is not going to help either. So I, I know the Yankees want to get him back. The fans want to get him back as fast as possible. And, uh, you know, it's too bad he can't play in the All-Star game on Tuesday because uh, he certainly deserves that. And the fans want to. They want to see him, too. But he's going to stay here in New York and get some treatment and uh, try to get back on the field as soon as possible. That's good news. Good news, Brian. Brian Hoke with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, going through the book, and you folks will find out when you read it, some great chapter names. I enjoy clever chapter names, Brian. And which one was your favorite to write? <laughs> oh boy! Um, you know the one that comes to my mind is "I Got You, Babe." Um, it, it, I was going to mention that one. That, that's and, my favorite. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I just you know it's so simple and it, there's not that much to it, but uh, obviously there's a musical connection there, and uh, I, I just thought that fit perfectly. And I don't. I, sometimes it comes to you, and sometimes it's just easy. And um, I, I said that is perfect, of course, because he's catching Babe Ruth. So that's the title that. Uh, for Judge catching Ruth and hitting number 60. Outstanding. Now, uh, the the idea for the book, did did you think that the market would be flooded with Aaron Judge books uh, about this momentous year, or uh, you, you were going ahead with it? 
I didn't really know. Uh, you know, the, I first started kicking around the idea of a book in uh, July, when right around this time last year, where he was about halfway to Maris, and uh, yeah, he had about 30, 31 home runs at the All Star break, and so I started thinking about. Hey, if Judge has an MVP type year, if he catches Maris, if if the Yankees win the World Series, there might be a book there. Remember, the Yankees were off to a great start. They had a 15 and a half game lead in the East and right. looked like they were world beaters. And then that fell off in the second half, and Judge single handedly brought them to the postseason. But yeah, I, I would say in July, and then certainly by August when Judge hit 50, and you look at the calendar and you say. Wow, he's got six or seven weeks left here, and they, can he get another 10 or 11 home runs? Sure he can. And so uh, I, I think that those two times combined was kind of – you look at the calendar and you do some quick math and you figure how many games he's got left, and you say, wow, if he stays on his face, he, he might hit 70. Obviously, he struggled at the end. I think the pressure got to him a little bit. That definitely impacted him, and I think he was spent emotionally – uh, by the time the postseason came around, I think it physically and emotionally took a, uh, a toll out of him, and I think it just shows how difficult a record that is to break and uh, kind of the the, uh, the challenges that it includes there to try and be one of the greatest players in baseball history. Yeah, uh, 62 was a fine number. That was that. It was a tremendous job by Judge, as you say. With, with I'm with glad the... he didn't. I, I think 62 is more poetic too. I'm yeah. glad he didn't hit 65. Yeah, um, I, I think that 62 is is the perfect number because it's just one pass, Maris, and there's this neat. Uh, sequence with Ruth at 60, Maris is 61, and Judge is 62 that we would have lost if he had gone out and hit 65 or 66. Uh, and so thank it, you, Aaron, for that. Yeah, and it really shows, Brian, how ridiculous uh, the the uh, performance-enhancing records uh, were. Uh, it, it blows that out of proportion, and, and I'm, I'm glad, as I said, 62 is a nice number, and I'm glad he did that. Are, are there any upcoming events uh, for the book, any press tours, any signings after yes, the release? Uh, yes, I, I'm doing a sign. Well, this is a press tour right here. Uh, but uh, I'm doing a signing on uh, July 13 at the Strand Bookstore in New York City. So okay. if anybody's... Uh, Wants to come out and uh, hang out and listen to us do a Q&A about the book and, and talk about it. Otherwise, uh, books available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. And, um, and we'll get you some signed copies, too, if you head to my website at brian-hoke at M-O- I'm sorry, excuse me, I almost gave you my email address, uh, <laughs> brian-hoke.com. And then you can... Uh, but you can email me too if you want to, and then we'll uh, we'll get you a signed copy of the book too. There you go, folks. You can get a signed copy of sixty two. Now, what what I uh, was remiss in mentioning, Brian, you're you're on Facebook as well. Yes, uh, at Brian Hoke MLB, and that's B R Y A N H O C H. So you can get Brian Facebook, uh, Twitter, and. Uh, he gave you the uh, his website. You can order the book through there. As we said, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, readily available. And as all great books, it's going to be released on Tuesday. Why they picked Tuesday to release books, I really don't know, Brian. It's puzzled <laughs> me for years. But if you notice the release dates for some, some uh, great titles, it's always a Tuesday. <laughs> People are a lot smarter than me in making those decisions, yeah, I guess. I'll I have guess to ask. Because the All-Star game was on Tuesday. I thought that's why it was coming out. But 
So maybe there's something more to it. Yeah, I've been collecting for a while, and uh, it's always Tuesday. I ask, ask my friends, uh, the ladies at Simon & Schuster, maybe they'll have an answer for me. But, uh, Sounds good. Brian, it's been a pleasure. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us here out on Long Island. Uh, again, folks, the book is titled 62, Aaron Judge, The New York Yankees, and the Pursuit of Greatness. Again, available Tuesday. It's from our friends at Simon & Schuster. The website, brian-hoke.com, and you can follow this gentleman on Twitter, at Brian Hoke, all one word. Thanks, Brian, and uh, we wish you all the best of luck with the book. You got it. Thanks so much for having me. That's Brian Hoke, ladies and gentlemen. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Frank Viola and Brian Hoke, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us. I'll see you next week, Sunday night, July 16th, when my guests will be Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Dave Mason, who will be appearing at the Great South Bay Music Festival out in Patchogue, and we'll talk about the British Open, folks. Golf! How do you like that, Brian? We'll take a swing at it. Oh. Uh, till then, folks, be safe. Be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.